Welcome to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and I thank you so much for joining us here on the program. As uh, we get set for, as I have said before many times, one of my favorite interviews is with the folks uh, who spend inordinate amounts of time in, in study and research and all of that good stuff. I'm talking about rabbis. I have had some of the most incredible conversations uh, with rabbis who have written books, uh, who are just here to talk sometimes about the the Jewish faith and sometimes about Jewish mysticism. And I also have to remind myself, and I, I remind our listeners too, as I'm sharing this with our guest, special guest here on the program, that if I was going to be a really true follower of the man who... Um, uh, who who uh, uh, died and rose again two, over 2,000 years ago, I would not be a Christian. Now, that sounds very strange, but he never asked us to convert. He was a Jew. I should be Jewish. So with that being said, I welcome to our uh, podcast, our mini uh, broadcast podcast videocast, the author of Embodied Kabbalah or Kabbalah. And it all depends on how you want to pronounce it. We'll find out how he does it. A Jewish mysticism for all people, not just Jews. And his name is Matthew Ponak. And Rabbi, thank you so much for joining us here on the program. It's, I, again, it's wonderful to have you on on the program because I I'm I mean you you're awfully you seem awfully young for those who are watching uh, to be a rabbi because I would think it would take 30, 40 years to reach that stage with with all of the education uh, that you have to have. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me, Richard, and thank you for the lovely introduction for me and for rabbis in general. Oh, I I, I can't tell you. I, I'm and and some of the things that are, have been shared with me, <clears throat> I loved. Uh, and I won't go into into the detail, but we were talking about a particular subject, and one of the uh, uh, one of the laws, Levitic laws, and he says, "Do you know the context?" I'm going context. This is a law. It's it's just what it is. No, I don't. What is it? And he shared it with me. And I go, Oh, that makes more sense. Uh, and so it's like, you know, people need to do a little bit more research before they start using, uh, whether it's the Torah or the New Testament, to bash people over the head uh, to get them to conform. But we're not here to bash anybody. We are actually here to talk about this book, which cannot be seen on the screen, but uh, it will be when folks are watching this on YouTube, Embodied Kabbalah or Kabbalah. Thank you, sir. Uh, how do you pronounce it? Does it really matter? And are we referring to the same thing, i.e., in English, the tree of life? So I pronounce it Kabbalah, but Kabbalah. I'm open to different pronunciations. That's sort of a more modern Hebrew pronunciation. Kabbalah is more Ashkenazi from sort of the Eastern European Jewry. It's the same thing. Now, the only difference is that sometimes Kabbalah refers to the whole history of Jewish mysticism, and sometimes it refers to the movement that arose in the Middle Ages that has to do with the Tree of Life. On the cover of this book, Embodied Kabbalah, it has to do with the whole history, but that medieval movement is such a profound and unique expression in the world of mysticism. I, I really use it both ways when I teach and speak. Well, I will tell you, you've got some really neat uh, diagrams and so forth in here, and it's a wonderful book. I, I really like it, and it's hardcover. <laughs> it's hard copy, hardcover, uh, which is kind of nice. Um, 
<clears throat> I don't know if you've ever taken a look at the tree of life itself, the, the physical representation thereof. <clears throat> and this is rather interesting. This is sidebar. Um, I don't know if Gene Roddenberry had intended this, but if you look at it and you look at the Starship Enterprise, the original from the 60, 60s, 1960s series, you actually can see the formation of a portion of the tree of life. And I'm going, wow, that I, I don't know if it was conscious or, or unconscious, subconscious, uh, what it was that the design came from, but uh, I just thought it was a pretty neat aspect. <clears throat> Let's talk about uh, the Kabbalah and uh, what it is. And, and maybe in some instances, what it isn't because I, I, a lot of people you know they hear the word and um i also hear uh, the word being used in the constant context of um sort of almost a a, 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 a sort of a denigrating uh, a phrase used for a certain group of people who believe a certain way that is just uh bizarre to the rest of us in other words how can the world can these people go down this particular path it makes no sense what are they basing their what are they basing their their belief on you know and so on and so forth kind of like uh oh i don't know uh uh like heaven's gate for example really there's going to be a ship that's going to come and take you away but you have to commit suicide <laughs> anyway so what is it and what isn't it well, first off, the Star Trek reference, I, I can't it visualize that ship in my head, but I'm a big fan of sci-fi and fantasy in general. Mm -hmm. So if we want to talk about something like Star Wars mm -hmm. and the way Obi-Wan Kenobi explains the force yes. to Luke Skywalker in episode mm -hmm. four, he says something along the lines of it's an energy field generated by all human beings. It it surrounds everything and binds the universe together. Something along those lines is a pretty good way of explaining an element of Kabbalah, which has to do with how God or the divine or spirit manifests in our world mm -hmm. and how each of us can have access to that. If if I were to explain it in the, in the simplest terms, Kabbalah is a description of the different layers of reality and a step-by-step -step or even sort of layer-by-layer, -layer, dimension by dimension encounter with the different manifestations of the divine and how we can interact with that on earth. And that's really what we're looking at is the interaction with the divine, if you will. Uh, we, we promote on this program and have been since September of 2019, what started out as the, the year of perfect vision, 2020. Then we went on to the decade of perfect vision, the 2020s. Well, what that means, uh, uh, Rabbi, is we want people to spend time going within, to sit quietly in that still, quiet, peaceful, calm place and listen to that still, small voice, which some will interpret as the divine. Is that where we can sort of connect with the divine and and find out more about uh, because i think too when you mentioned you know the 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 force that is put out by that, that that emanates from human beings the first thought that came to mind was lynn mctaggart and her books about um you know the 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 field and so forth mm -hmm. so the understanding and 
I guess I can't purport to speak on behalf of all Kabbalah or of all of Judaism, but what I'm saying now is sort of the way that it resonates most deeply for me Mm -hmm. is that we can find the divine, so to speak. We can encounter the divine in any element of reality though. Yes, we can find that within and we can find that in that, that still small voice, that, that deep river or flow or silence that is, is within us. And we can also find the divine in relationships with other people, with animals, with trees. We can find the divine in poetry. We can find the divine through wonderful experiences in nature, through adventure. Any encounter we're having, any relationship we're having with any physical part of the world, in fact, including our bodies, rocks, and all the more so in in beautiful scripture or wisdom teachings, I shouldn't say all the more so, equally so, maybe that's a radical statement, that it, it, they're all gateways potentially towards something that lies beyond. And it's it's the orientation towards the potential in those experiences that opens up the access points and the, the contact. We're talking with Rabbi Matthew Ponak. He's a teacher of Jewish mysticism. He is a, a spiritual counselor. He's the, also the co-founder of and I'm, I want to get this pronunciation correct, correct, the <clears throat> Mekora Institute. I pronounce it Mekora, which Makora. is funny because it's different how, than how I pronounce Kabbalah. Uh, but in uh, any case, <laughs> either one are good. By the way, it's an online super, uh, center for embodied practice, which we're going to talk about, ordained with honors as a rabbi at Neo-Hasidic a rabbinical school. I love that word, rabbinical. Uh, school of Hebrew College. He also holds a master's degree in contemplative religions from uh, Nepora University. Naropa. N- uh, Naropa. Naropa uh, University. Matthew lives uh, as uh, we are speaking with him right now, especially in Victoria, British Columbia, certified as a Focusing professor, that's an interesting title, focusing professor to guide others to deeper self-knowledge and healing. And he's also the author of this book we're talking about, Embodied Kabbalah. You can learn more at Matthew Ponak, and we'll be linked to your website, MatthewPonak.com, M-A-T-H, correct, M-A-T-T-H-E-W-P-O-N-A-K.com. And you are listening to Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and uh, it's really a pleasure to have uh, Rabbi Matthew Ponak with us here to talk about embodied Kabbalah and uh, learning how to pronounce all kinds of different words. Uh, and and that's the fun of uh, that's really the fun of life for me is is uh, I am a, I'm a stickler for a getting people's names correct, uh, and uh, that's so important because I realize it was the the way it was done in those days back in the late 18, early 1900s, as people were coming through Ellis Island and uh, the people behind the counter or the desk just didn't want to deal with it. Uh, yeah, I know your name is uh, uh, you're going to be John Smith. It's just much easier for me to pronounce. I don't care what your real name is. Um, that was just the way it was back then. But we know better now. And so it's real important. And so I want to ask you about what it means to be a focusing professor. That's a rather interesting title. Well, uh, focusing is a, a an approach to inner knowledge, which orients to the body. So 
this was first, you could say, dreamed up or imagined and researched <laughs> in the 1950s by someone named Eugene Gendlin. And he is actually one of his students went on to, to found somatic experiencing, which is more well known. But Eugene Gendlin essentially went through, I believe it was thousands of studies on therapy sessions to see what how people were not just temporarily affected by them, but in a deeper way, they could carry these insights or these shifts with them. And what he noticed is there's some people who naturally, when they were inquiring into their own minds, would start feeling the sensations in their bodies. Oh, wow. And so focusing in that sense is like an old, older style camera where you'd have to kind of twist the lens mm -hmm. a little bit and get it just right so people can actually find using those sensations that say a statement and was that quite right oh i'm not sure if that's really what i was feeling and then they would use the actual senses often in their abdomen somewhere you know their their heart center or their belly their throat and they would try and figure out precisely what they were articulating and if they said it right and then they had an insight that came from that they would physically feel a change mm. and a shift in their bodies and he found that that was one of the things that set people apart who really were impacted by the process and so he set out to create a method for helping to teach people who couldn't do this on their own which is the most of us don't naturally do that and so focusing is essentially a a method for self-knowledge and inner transformation that works using the sensations on our physical bodies. Mm. And it makes me think of uh, a technique that I learned. Oh my goodness. I remember the woman's name who taught it, uh, Virginia Benderly, uh, when I was in Phoenix, it's my hometown. And, um, oh, it had to do with, uh, um, something along those lines, but there's also another technique that I do remember the name of kinesiology where it, it was actually called muscle testing where the body, the body knows better than the mind. Okay. In that respect, the body will tell you the truth and uh, you can use it for darn near anything. Uh, and of course it was taught to me for the purposes of, uh, for example, if I'm in the grocery store and I'm not sure that I should buy that particular apple or avocado or whatever it is, even in the produce section. And nowadays with people being concerned about GMO and non-GMO and this and that and the other, and you can muscle test it. Well, to me, that's kind of like the intuition and listening to that still small voice. And the body is, is like, if you will, uh, what, a receptor uh, to, to those kinds of things when you talk about the field or the force, if you will. Yeah, a receptor. It's also a storehouse. Ah, that our bodies remember things that happen to us. So even tissue memory, don't. sort of like tissue memory. Yeah. yeah, and so there's a lot of different ways of relating to the body for different spiritual purposes or goals. And if muscle testing is orienting towards, you could say, truth or mm -hmm. or decision making, focusing. It can include that, but the way that I often use it when in, I'm working with clients in sessions or I, I talk about focusing in the book Embodied Kabbalah, it has to do with gaining an understanding of an inner element that's that's constricted or stuck. If our, our bodies are remembering things, but there's we can get what 
Kabbalists and Tibetan Buddhists, Buddhists for that matter, might call knots in the mind or knots in the soul is a is a Kabbalistic term for that. There's a tangles that that can arise that mm-hmm. are actually, and our bodies are recording that. And so if we can tap into it and discover what caused the clog in the machinery or or what what went awry, it's about allowing things then just simply by understanding what happened, they the the different elements can go back to their proper place or at least move in that direction. And so it comes with catharsis, uh, often some kind of emotional release and insight and that hopefully then that can be manifesting into our lived experience as well, into our lives. So mm. things like compassion, for example, can arise through this practice over time, uh, even if people couldn't feel a real compassion for others initially. Yeah, yeah. you know, and and I remember uh, a comment, or actually is a question by my mother. Now I was born and raised uh, a Catholic, Western Rite of the Catholic Church. I had the great pleasure through my first wife of learning about the Eastern Rite of the Catholic Church. And the traditions, that's one thing that I love about Catholicism is the rituals, the traditions and ceremony, which are missing from our society and civilization when it comes to the aspect of, as we're talking here, not only spirituality, but this aspect of mysticism. Catholicism has that element of mysticism in it, too, uh, and, uh, and, and so forth. What was it that attracted you to this aspect, of, first of the Kabbalah, but this aspect of uh, uh, Jewish mysticism? Well, I was raised in a Jewish family, in a Jewish community that was very was very family-oriented, and it was especially really just community-oriented. I had, like, my the friends I grew up with in my Jewish school it's we were closer to family than to friends. I've I've learned since. I didn't quite appreciate it at the time, but I've come to realize that the people I knew back then, we were just we were like a big family, and and it was a really lovely, nurturing way to be raised. And it wasn't until I was a teenager, actually, I'd left that kind of Jewish school context and was in a public high school, that I really first encountered the mystical elements of of the tradition. I guess they don't generally teach those to children. <laughs> Mm. Which I think there's some real wisdom there. You don't want to necessarily start talking about non-duality before the, the children understand the concreteness <laughs> of reality. Yeah. There's different approaches. That's generally been my take. And I think I have an appreciation <laughs> for it now. But as a teenager, it really was just, I sort of wandered into this class. A friend invited me. It was sort of a class for Jewish teenagers. And it was very steeped in Jewish mysticism. Mm. I, it was the first class I walked in there and it was like something inside of me woke up. I have never, it was, yeah, like a part of my soul that I didn't even know existed. Mm. It was just listening to those words from this wise woman that was teaching. And from that point onward, I had this, this passion ignited. My, wow. m- my path has not been, I've never had a difficult time connecting with the mystical stuff or with you sort of beautiful, wonderful, wow moments that can come uh, in our lives. The, mm. the hard part that I had to learn about was how to stay grounded in it because my challenge was being overwhelmed from the light as opposed to essentially tapping into it in the first place that that part once i encountered it it was sort of wow this is amazing i really love this and then it was learning about navigating that vis-a-vis daily life and and healthy living rabbi matthew rabbi matthew ponak is my guest we're talking about embodied 
Kabbalah. It is dealing with that this whole aspect that we're starting to get into now of the Jewish mysticism for all people. And we're going to talk about some interesting things, including what you just referenced, a grounded spirituality. We're going to talk about uh, a few other things as well as we continue here on Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and uh, it is, as I've said uh, before on this program, a real pleasure to have with us uh, Rabbi Matthew Ponak with us. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about some some very interesting things <clears throat> that I think you're going to find fascinating. I, I This kind of stuff blows me away um, because it opens new doors. It opens new, uh, if you will, avenues uh, of thought for me, especially when I, I, I share the story of the one rabbi I spoke with, and we were talking about one of those Levitical laws that I mentioned in the beginning of the program. And he says, do you know the context in, as to why that, that law was written? <clears throat> and um, no, I don't. And he shared it. And I'm going, oh, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I want to talk a little bit here about a couple of elements. You mentioned grounded spirituality and being a conscious person who seeks a balance of life values and honesty, uh, accountability, kindness, and modern spiritual seekers who cling, uh, who glean value, wisdom, and practice from distilled forms of Buddhism, for example, or mindfulness, Hinduism, yoga. I consider myself, by the way, Rabbi, a metaphysician. I, I did not leave the Catholic Church. I'm not an ex-Catholic. I just moved on for me what was the next level. And there are times, I have to tell you, there are times when I'm thinking, I wonder if if Judaism might be my next level. Some would say, oh, but Richard, you're going backwards. I don't think so. <laughs> because there are so many things we don't know. This is, I go, I, I will, case in point, how much do we really know about the Islamic faith? I mean, the real Islamic faith, not the extremism. Um, <clears throat> and and what do we really know about Judaism? For example, uh, Shabbat, uh, making, uh, making refreshing rest part of our rhythms, which also is very important. Uh, what, do you, what do you think about people who are, are searching in this regard? I remember becoming a Baha'i, but not because I believed wholeheartedly in what Baha'u'llah was, was espousing in his books, which I still have a bunch of, but because the, these people just embraced me. It was like I found a new family. They they just they took me in, and after a year and a half of being a Baha'i, I said I can't make that final step because I feel as though I joined under false pretenses. But I was searching, and I'm still searching. I haven't stopped my search. Don't get me wrong. Uh, I don't even think I'll stop my search after death. But talk to us a little bit about your experiences with your search, and now that you're a rabbi, you have chosen for for this time period anyway this particular path. Um, tell us about that and 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 uh, uh, what you found. Uh-oh. Well, I just wanted pass. to... I, I, to <laughs> I, double, I had to double check what you were saying about a metaphysician. There's a book right behind me uh -huh. that's called 
physician of the soul, healer of the cosmos. Oh, and wow. it reminded me of that term metaphysician. And it's about a particular Kabbalist, uh, very famous named Isaac Luria. And when, when we hear the term tikkun olam, which is often translated today as to heal the world in a sort of more physical sense, what he meant and his disciples meant was healing the cosmos, meaning the, the metaphysical realms needed our help to heal them. And so when you're talking about that and just curiosity and Judaism, mm -hmm. I had to mention it. Well, thank uh, you. Well, tell us about your search. My my search. Well, I started in a sense, you know, we all we're all on a search when we're born. I don't think the spiritual level or the spiritual dimensions of our being are it's a developmental stage for a lot of us. And and we we reach that and it's hopefully kind of building on everything we've done before. But when I was 16 and I found that mystical genre of Judaism, I became impassioned and just my whole value system shifted fairly quickly. After a couple of years of really a lot of learning and practices, I ended up in a seminary in Israel, a yeshiva, where I was studying. I was 18 years old. I was studying Torah maybe 12 hours a day. I was praying three hours a day. I wasn't eating much. I wasn't sleeping much. And, and I had sort of this really ungrounded, overwhelming experience where one of the ways of describing it in a Kabbalistic metaphor is that each of us has sort of containers or you could say energy centers, but also like vessels, sort of clay pots in this sort of older metaphorical sense. And those were being filled with divine light when we're having spiritual pursuits. But sometimes they can get overwhelmed and they can crack a little bit and a little bit of a crack is okay. Mm -hmm. And that can heal and grow and strengthen. But when they get so overwhelmed that they shatter, there's some major rebuilding that needs to be done. And that's, what happened to me when I was 18. I had a, a mental health issue that arose from spiritual practice, which I didn't even know that was possible at that age. And it took me a few years to really figure out what had happened. And I eventually <clears throat> encountered teachings all about the simplest things in life that are grounding, that can balance that out, that it's not about like transcending or ascending simply for its own sake. It's actually about I learned the importance of being a bridge, that if my feet aren't on the ground, if I'm not eating well, if I'm not sleeping well, if I'm not regularly exercising, for me, I don't need to, to do drugs. <laughs> There's nothing <laughs> I am lacking in the realm of joy and excitement if I want to cultivate that or even, you know, altered states of consciousness, hallucinogens, any anything like that, any sort of uh, intoxicant, I just stay away from now. And I, I meditate on my feet if I'm feeling lightheaded. There's a whole bunch of these rituals, but essentially over time, I came to discover that those teachings about groundedness, which I had learned through a transpersonal psychologist, those teachings were found within Jewish mysticism, but they weren't very well known. And so I compiled them along with a few other teachings. I just felt like the world needed to know from, from op to open up the gates of Jewish wisdom and Jewish mysticism more specifically. To, to it's the path of the sacred bridge. Yeah. It's that ability to be connected deeply, you could say above or within, and also simultaneously relatable. Someone who can show up on time, someone who can who can have integrity and who knows how to chill out and not just talk about spiritual things at every moment. Really, that that's part of that balance. You know, that's very important too. And I, I find myself, uh, I mean, I worked for 15 years back in uh, the 80s and early 90s for a Christian radio station. And of course, this was during the height of televangelism. 
And of course, um, I was I was questioning everything. I was questioning every answer to every question that I got because in my mind, God-given mind, thank you very much, none of the answers I was getting or many of the answers I was getting made no sense. They just didn't fit as a puzzle piece into the big uh, the, the big picture. And so I, I said, no, this makes no sense. Now, <clears throat> one in particular that I, I, I we can talk about a little bit. Uh, if I am correct in my understanding from the Torah, um, in Christianity, there is God and heaven, and then there's the devil, Satan, Lucifer, etc., fallen angel, and hell. But from what I remembered in a discussion with, again, a rabbi, um, and then also reading a sort of a translation, my goodness, talk about negative energy trying to infiltrate here. Um, what I found was that there is no such thing as a literal Satan, evil, uh, 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 demonic kind of creature or, or entity or soul, spirit, that according to the uh, uh, to Judaism, what that's referring to, from what I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, the lowest base nature of man. It's not outside of us. It's inside of us. And it's it's like that old uh, Native American uh, 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 phrase, uh, story about uh, uh, the two wolves, the black wolf and the white wolf and, and so forth. And of course, uh, the, the response from the elder is, uh, uh, to the question, well, which one is going to win? It just depends upon which one you feed, you know. Uh, and and when I when I came to that realization, or at least that understanding at that point in my life, and it took five years for me to release from my beliefs this concept of the devil and hell. Uh, we got we got hell right here sometimes. Is 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 my understanding close? <laughs> so, my my quick answer is there are different opinions. Okay, that Judaism really is a path of of this life, this world, mm -hmm. and yeah, you'll find different descriptions of what happens after we die, or you know, dark dimensions that exist and that kind of thing. But the the emphasis, the vast emphasis in the writings and the teachings in our history is living our lives well mm. and living our lives connected and ethically and in a balanced way. It's about this world. So if you look like Google or, or look on certain websites or, or uh, books, the different versions of afterlife in Judaism and the Bible, the Bible, you'll find a lot of different answers. Mm -hmm. But the the essence of, of that teaching, really just the fact that there are different opinions about the afterlife religion, it means it's not about that. It's about the here and now. And we're, yeah. we're meant to do the best we can while we're here. Do you find that people um, such as myself in that particular example are uh, they want answers to their questions that are concrete um, and 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 to that end, there's a saying that was given to me that was said to me when I was 21, 
I was 21. I was told two things. One, I was told I was wise beyond my years, which made me wonder if I would maintain that separation between years and wisdom and that I would I would still stay above that kind of thing as I got older. But then the other thing was uh, that um, uh, it, it it's like it is better to begin in doubt and end in certainty than to begin in certainty and end in doubt. Do you find a lot of people try to use any religion and its books and its teachings and so forth to uh, try to find some level of permanence, uh, maybe in their lives, when in fact, because you kind of alluded to this earlier in the program, there's there is non-duality, which we'll get into. Um, but that that everything is changing. There is nothing that's permanent. Everything is temporal. It is a human tendency to want to hold on to something. Absolutely. What I think the Jewish system, and I, and again, when I'm teaching Jewish mysticism for all people, mm -hmm. anything like this I present is flexible. And I encourage people to create something that works for them and that's inspired by it, really, if they don't want to do exactly what I'm about to describe. But the idea of Shabbat, the day of rest, mm -hmm. is not just a day of resting. It's also a day of, of appreciation and celebrating everything we have and delighting ourselves physically, really eating the best food and taking naps and it, it, exposing ourselves to natural beauty. And we're, we're supposed to find a way to really appreciate all we do have. And so the work week mentality, if you will, is that unknowable, is that impermanence, is the never ending search or meaning or, or transcendence of some kind or, or even just transformation. That's that's work week. Mm. And the Shabbat is arriving there. That mm -hmm. it's getting ourselves to a place where we feel even just for a day a week, let's see, Friday night to Saturday night, you could do it for 30 minutes in the evening. I believe you could cultivate that kind of mentality for 20 minutes on a break at work. I really do. Uh, there's There's methods that Essentially, it's about tapping into what we're truly needing in that moment and nourishing ourselves and coming to that place where we do feel complete because both are true. Everything is done. Everything is, is worthy of being celebrated in that Shabbat mindset. But if that's all we're doing, yeah, then we're going to miss out on the actual work we need to be doing on ourselves as well as in the world, in our communities and beyond. This is, to me, fascinating stuff. Got more uh, questions for you as we continue talking with uh, Rabbi Matthew Ponak, Embodied Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism for all people here on Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and uh, it is just really a, a pleasure to be speaking uh, with uh, Matthew Ponak, Rabbi Matthew Ponak, and uh, um, uh, to, to discuss so many different areas of this. My mother asked me some years ago if I had ever had any supernatural or spiritual experiences. Uh, I think she was looking for maybe, did you have an out-of-body experience? I've never had a, a near-death experience, nor out-of-body, that I am aware of, consciously. Um, other things of this nature. Now, my answer to her was sort of along the lines of the life of Jesus, uh, told in the New Testament in the Gospels and the miracles that he performed. To him, his performing of these miracles was no big deal. 
it's that's just who he was. That's just what he did. You could call what he was doing mystical. I mean, we could we could give that that term. So when I answered my mother, I says, "Well, if I've had one, I don't know, I don't know that it was a mystical experience or a spiritual experience, because it just maybe seemed normal to me. You know, maybe I came across someone who was actually a, an angel in a physical body who was uh, here to guide me, and then I've never seen them again. You know, I, I don't know. Um, <clears throat> what about you? Uh, you talk about mysticism." And mysticism, by its very, sh shall we say, definition, implies, I, I maybe it says it directly, but implies that uh, there is some, I don't know if you want to use the word paranormal, spiritual, mystical kind of thing that, that uh, uh, people can experience, sort of as you described earlier in terms of people feeling something in their bodies, maybe in their abdomen, et cetera, et cetera. Tell us about maybe uh, 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 something like that that's happened to you and what that did, A, to your searching, but also to your faith. Yeah, that, that's a great question. I I want to share the first mystical experience I had, which was in that time when I was a teenager, 16 years old, just a couple months into that teenage class on, on Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism and other topics that I was exploring, I got this book called Outpouring of the Soul, which is was a meditative technique, really of prayer. It was personal prayer. And the, the guidance was to essentially chant a name of God for, you know, until until I felt ready to then pour my heart out or speak, speak what was inside. And I just started praying to God in my room. And it was it lasted an hour. And I walked out of well, my mom's house and I lived close to my dad's house. And so I walked, you know, five, 10 minutes. And I, I noticed that my heart was filled with this really radiant pleasure, this, this bliss, it was like glowing inside of me. And as I looked around, it was the springtime and the trees where I was walking on my path, they were all glowing each in their own way as well, that it was mm. like someone had turned up the the interest knob on reality or the the wow of of all existence. And mm -hmm. I was just in that moment. It was it was a psychedelic, really. Uh, and I had this sense that there's more here than meets the eye uh, in in our world. The, the next day, I was so excited, I decided to try it again. <laughs> and it was maybe made it 30, 45 minutes in the meditation wasn't quite as strong. And, and the next day, I tried it again, and maybe made it 20 minutes, and it didn't, it didn't come back. And I was worried I had done something wrong, or, you know, and I there were a lot, there was a lot of learning in that one is that meditation and prayer and these practices can be extremely powerful and transformational. But also, I, I had to learn this many years later that chasing the dragon, <laughs> so to speak, or, mm -hmm. or trying to follow them consciously and intentionally that when I could orient to them really as gifts that came sometimes and went, and that if I was doing a practice, it was for its own sake and not for the sake of some mystical attainment. That was something I had to learn later on. But those first experiences with the glowingness and the beauty all around me really taught me that God was everywhere and that it's easy to miss, that God is very good at hiding yeah. But if we just tap in or find ways to to just part those veils a little bit, we'll notice that spirit is is with us, inside of us, all around us at each and every moment. 
I uh, I remember um, hearing all of the different stories uh, from the evangelical community when I was working for those 15 years. And it was probably six or seven years into that stint that I, I started saying, not necessarily to the pastors, the ministers, the laity, et cetera, of the programmers, but sort of to myself and to the universe going, um, is there something that I can do to help to hasten uh, the the establishment? And again, this is from the Christian philosophy, uh, the establishment of the Antichrist to bring about uh, Armageddon, to bring about uh, all of this stuff so we can move on to a new story because I'm bored. I am bored with that story. It just come on. It's like. I can understand watching Star Wars, the the original movie, which I did. I went and I think it was 75. I went to uh, the Seneca Pre Theater in Phoenix, stood in line at midnight, and I watched the movie. But I only saw it once on the big screen. And this was one of those big curved screens, right? Uh, it was before its time, ahead of its time. And I know there are people who have watched it hundreds of times, and that's great. And I love watching Star Trek. I love watching the uh, Next Generation series that a dear friend of mine who I worked with at that station used to say was our modern mythology. Now put that filter on watching the next generation series, uh, Matthew, and, and see what you get. It was fascinating when I started looking at it that way, but I'm going, could we get another story? Cause I'm bored with this story. This is like, cause this has been screamed from the rooftops for 2000 years, you know, and then there are people like a, a gentleman by the name of Edgar Weissenach, who uh, back in 1988, I think it was uh, June or July, maybe August, he said that Jesus was going to return the 16th, 17th, or 18th of September of that year. Now, the 17th happens to be my mother's birthday, but it didn't happen. He, so he's gone for a few months, finally reappears. Oh, uh, um, I, I forgot to carry the one, blah, 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 blah. And then he said, it's uh, 1989, and it didn't happen. So a few years ago, I looked up Edgar Wisenut to see if I could find out if he was you know, around anywhere. And, of course, he's since passed. To which, I, <laughs> the only response, and it's the same response I had when Jerry Falwell passed away. Well, at least now they know the truth. Let's talk about the truth a little bit. Now, there are those who say there's objective truth. There is, uh, there is the truth, and then there's truth. I heard a great line the other day in a movie by the protagonist who said, there is no reality. There's only perception. So if you were to lay that filter over that statement about truth, then there is only the truth that you choose to make the truth in your life. What are you, what are your thoughts on that aspect in terms of this this mystical this mystical life? Because quite honestly, this life is mystical because of the fact. How does the body continue to do what it does, and the heartbeat and the brain synapse and all that? That is amazing technology. <laughs> Absolutely. There's, uh, we're living in a very uh, miraculous and wonderful world. The, when it comes to truth, I, I heard a great story a few years ago. It's a rabbi who I know 
was in a synagogue in Brooklyn or somewhere in New York. And there was two Jewish philosophers that sat down behind him before the service. And one of them turned to the other and asked this great question. What do you think is more dangerous, absolute certainty or absolute doubt? And the way the rabbi told the story is he didn't hear the answer. And that's he's like, great, I love the question. Let's, you know, it was all about questions and pursuits. And so we think about it. If there's capital T truth and if someone has it and someone doesn't, that's that's absolute certainty. And that's it's a little bit dangerous, uh, maybe a lot dangerous. But on the other side, there's people who hear, oh, there's no real truth. It's all perspective. And then everything's in doubt. And mm-hmm. if someone feels overwhelmed by that experience, oh, I don't know what's what and who's who, and it can go in a in a nihilistic direction, let's say in the negative sense. I'm not opposed to nihilism like completely, but there's a way in which it can get really overwhelming and and take over and get depressing and that kind of thing. And Mm. that kind of doubt I don't think is healthy. My general sense is in most areas, let's say mystical experiences, we should be open to uncovering something new. There's new light coming into the world at each and every moment. And we can learn from past systems as a way to build a foundation for new encounters. And I think that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. The, the, and and in, in many ways, I think there's a lot of gray in our world. And I think we, that's in politics, that's in religion, that's in philosophy. The one area I'm, I guess, cautious around, probably more than cautious, if I'm going to be honest, is really, I don't even know if I'd quite say adamant, but I feel more firm in this is that if we say there's no such thing as truth in ethics, the basics, basic ethics about how we treat each other. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, there's grays around like, you know, difficult scenarios. Could you kill one person to save 20? Those kinds of things. Yeah. But when it's, should we be kind to people as a general attitude towards others? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Should we have compassion as much as possible? Yes. Should we set boundaries when that's being overridden? Of course. But, you know, let's not kill innocent people. I think that's a truth that I will stand behind. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's, if someone's truly innocent and doesn't deserve it, why would like, harming those kinds of things to me, those are as close as I would come to capital T truths, if you will. Mm, Interesting. Rabbi Matthew Ponak is my guest, Embodied Kabbalah. And uh, we're talking about that right here on Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and it is um, always exciting for me to have the opportunity to dive into the world of uh, someone who has studied uh, uh, in a, a rabbinical school. Once again, I love that word, rabbinical. Um, I'm not going to ask how old you are, but how long were your studies when you decided to become a rabbi? Well, the active process was five years. Okay. And But before that, I mean, I've been studying Jewish texts since I was six years, five years old, really, learning Hebrew. And... I have, after I finished high school, nine years of Jewish education, you know, all of that. Um, I did 12 years of university afterwards, and that included five years with a focus on religious studies in my undergrad. I did a two years master's in contemplative religion, so world religions at this Buddhist university in Colorado, Naropa. And then I did another five years on top of that. And so five years of I guess, technical rabbinical school, but it really feels like I'm, for, I'm a lifelong learner yeah. after that as well. But the, yeah. uh, the deep dive and the really rigorous decoding and translation and grappling with the texts was, was a five-year journey. And so that would basically, and by the way, I have to say you look great for 85. It's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Appreciate it. I, uh, I had the, uh, I, I had the great pleasure 
um, as of our conversation here last night to to talk with my father. Now, why that's important? <clears throat> my father is 91. He'll be 92 in August of this year, 2023. And I say if he makes it that far, because he has been diagnosed with Parkinson's and uh, dementia. And they have set him up in my, in, in my parents' home in their condo in Phoenix. Uh, they converted my mother's sewing room, which I find an interesting conversion into my father's uh, uh, room. And um, thank goodness that we have, we didn't use Zoom. We actually had uh, uh, video on our phone calls. So I punched the little camera and boom, and my mother positioned the camera. So I got to see my father. Now, the last time I actually physically was in his presence was almost a year ago when uh, we were uh, saying goodbye to his eldest daughter, my older sister, uh, who passed away at the end of March. And we had the memorial at the end of near the end of April. And we had a wonderful conversation. It wasn't long. He didn't have, he, he, you know, gets tired, obviously, very easily, very quickly. But at least he was able to see me. I was able to see him. Uh, we had a beautiful conversation with both he and my mother, uh, obviously, uh, continuing to tell him that I love him very much. And uh, I hope that I get a chance to see him in the present, in the, in the, in the, uh, in the person, in person before his passing. But it, at this point, it's kind of inevitable because of the conditions that he's dealing with. So my sister passed a year ago after her passing, after I got the phone call and I hung up the phone. And believe it or not, I had 30 minutes before I had a scheduled interview, which I was uh, uh, I was told that after I'd done the interview and after my family had heard the interview, they said, you should have waited. You should have waited because you really hadn't. And it's like, but. In my business, the show must go on and you have to set aside all. The, and I incorporated the fact that my sister had just, I'd just been told that she'd passed within the context of that interview. But one thing that I was so astounded by was the fact that I was hearing her. Mm. And she was saying, hey, hey, Richard, it's okay. Everything's okay. Now, one of my first impulses is to ask the question, I wonder what they're doing. I wonder what they're going through. And what, what they're experiencing. And of course, I can only refer to her as she, because from my metaphysical studies, uh, Matthew, there is no gender per se in the spirit spirit world. We attach the gender to it. Um, what can you tell me about the, the, uh, the mystical aspects of death? And um, maybe that's, I don't know, it's the only word I can, that, that, that we've got right now. Uh, I like to use the word transforming, but uh, Bernie Siegel, who I've had on this program, when I was talking about when his, uh, when his wife transitioned, he stopped me and said, what do you mean? Trans she died. What's wrong with using the word die? And I said, okay, Bernie. All right. It's die. <laughs> but talk to us a little bit about the Jewish perspective on uh, death and dying. And, and can we call it the afterlife or the other dimension that we go into when we leave this physical body and so forth? Well, uh, apropos of what I was saying a few minutes ago, there's really opinions, if you will. I'm going to okay. share what I find the most compelling and the most beautiful in that in that world, which is that there's a, a term, a Kabbalistic term, Rishimu, which means an impression or a trace that it's possible for someone's soul, their essence, 
to move into the next world and also to leave a trace here in our world that we can still make contact with who they were both in our lives, but also really intuitively uh, in those kinds of connected ways. So Mm -hmm. just what I'm going to say now is about the soul transitioning and transforming, but that doesn't mean that they haven't left their mark here and it's, we can access that at the same time. Mm -hmm. So that, that transition has to do with a shedding of the layers that we've acquired in this world and a, a really a purification as the spirit moves closer and closer to the light to God. Yeah. And I am really connected with the Kabbalistic traditions around reincarnation. Uh, to me, that that really makes a lot of sense that if, if there's an afterlife in that sense, here we are, <laughs> this mm-hmm. is it, our afterlife from our past lives. But there are other views, of course. Now, there's a sense of sort of returning to the Godhead, returning and unifying uh, with the source of life and light. And that Sometimes these souls, well, there's more more for us to experience, more for us to do. And so we come back out again. I love it. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with a a, um, uh, a process of uh, basically uh, uh, named by a Dr. Newton called Life Between Lives Therapy, uh, okay. LBL. We have a practitioner here in Santa Barbara that I went to for to have that experience. I got to tell you, there are times when I wish I could go back to that life. Not that this one's bad, but it was just, it was just so cool. Um, uh, and, and, uh, but with the course, the focus of course was on that space between the ending of that life and the beginning of this one. And of course we went through the, the, you know, I read the books, I read the case studies and so forth. And of course had my experience and uh, it, it is to me just fascinating. And again, it reinforces uh, that this aspect of reincarnation. Now, there's a beautiful little book I carry with me. It was given to me when I was 21. A lot happened to me when I was 21. Uh, <laughs> it was a coming book of age. Was, I'm sorry. It's a coming of age. It is indeed. And uh, and of course, I call Blackjack and I win. But anyway, <laughs> uh, it was a book called The Impersonal Life. And in it, there's a chapter dealing with reincarnation. And it's this book, I don't know if you're familiar with it at all, but it was written by a gentleman by the name of James Banner back in the thir- in, in, in the 30s, 1930s. And it says in this particular chapter, and I'll paraphrase, you think that when you go to uh, past life uh, hypnosis and da 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 you think that you're tapping into lives that you have lived before. But I tell you, you are doing nothing more than tapping into the lives that I have manifested. In other words, we haven't lived other lives, but when we start doing this research, uh, it turns out that we're doing nothing more than tapping into those through a, you know, sort of a conduit, a spiritual conduit, uh, those other lives in the past. Now, either way, the whole point of doing past life regression and so forth and therapy is to learn. It isn't about, oh, I was Cleopatra or I was Napoleon or I was this or that or the other. It's what what did I experience and what did I learn? And maybe because I, I'm still going through that again in this life and maybe I didn't get it and I need to get it so that I don't have to do it in the next life if if there is one. And I just found the whole experience absolutely extraordinary. 
Um, I want to ask you uh, one quick question before we pause here. From my perspective, now, I myself, uh, I, I, I loved the interviewer, Larry King. Matter of fact, I um, I used to listen to him. I worked for a station in Phoenix where I worked uh, a Friday night, Saturday night, uh, overnights. And I would run the console locally for as an affiliate for the network. And the one thing I loved about the man, and I kind of incorporate this even into my metaphysics, metaphysics, metaphysical construct. And by the way, folks, metaphysics, basically, it's beyond the physical. I said this to a Christian once. I says, do you not understand that Christianity is metaphysical because it is beyond the physical? Yeah, there's lots of talk about the physical world and, and so forth. Render unto Caesar what's Caesar's to God, what's God's. But it's it's about the spirit. It's about who you really are. Anyway, I came to the this perspective, uh, uh, Matthew. I consider myself to be a metaphysical agnostic. Because, and I'll sum it up this way, I don't know. I'm searching. And that was the position Larry King took. He says, I don't know. I'm not an atheist. I'm an agnostic. I don't know. And that goes back to what we were talking about earlier, beginning in doubt and ending in certainty. Talk to us a little bit about your perspective on that. I think at the end of the day, it's not as important what a person's belief is. Uh, it's more important how they're living mm. and how they're, what their practices are internally and how that manifests or how their life is, how they're treating other people if they're pursuing their passions. If a belief is empowering, wonderful. If a belief is self-defeating or, you know what I mean? It's mm -hmm. not, maybe it's not so useful. I'm, I'm a little bit utilitarian on that. I personally, my let's say mystical life has caused me to believe, so to speak, even when I'm not in those moments, that there's something really magical and wonderful about this world. Uh, I don't know if that's the same thing as the God of the Bible, which is a jealous and a vengeful God in the Hebrew Bible, <laughs> that kind of thing. Those are not those are not concepts I resonate with. And at the end of the day, I, I encourage my students, uh, and I say this in my book in the introduction, that it's about trusting your experience and building up mm. an understanding of reality from that. We can say the question, do you believe in God is kind of a funny one because it's like, well, what's God and who, who defined that? Should I believe in some past generations version of what's really going on here that we should be inner scientists, the scientists of the sacred through our experience. I mean, I like science also the hard science as well, but in this sense, discovering what, we can through through encountering it and then building a framework of understanding from there. Yeah. You know, I have these great conversations and they can get, I don't want to say heated, but they can get very exciting because I enjoy talking with this gentleman because he and I are of different political perspectives, but we still communicate. We still talk and we're still friends. Um, because he takes a very soft tone in his dialogue, whereas I, I I get a little I get a little excited, but I love the interaction that I have with this man. Do you think that that's part of the problem that we have, or the I, I don't like using the word problem challenge, the challenge that we have in terms of our ability to communicate, I mean, genuinely communicate our ideas and 
and what have you with someone else and they with us to where we can actually learn something as opposed to, if I may put up the, uh, if I may use another <clears throat> Star Trek metaphor, putting up the shields and nothing gets in or out unless it's weapons, weapons fire. Yeah, I I think our society at large, and I'm talking, I'm, I'm a citizen of both the United States and Canada, mm-hmm. that we all have a lot of work to do on our social fabric and the way that we can engage with difference uh, across divides. Mm-hmm. And, and I really, in most broad terms, it takes two things. One, it takes mutual love and respect. And if that's not there to begin with, it's really hard, maybe even impossible sometimes to actually talk about what matters in a difficult way. So if there's not a acts of really acts of kindness, acts of generosity, just a general orientation of, of let's understand each other. I am not your enemy. Those kinds of things. Gift giving. I mean, the most basic human things. If that's not there, uh, we can't do the the harder work. And that harder work is about speaking truth, but saying it in a way that as they say in, in the nonviolent communication world, your words can be uh, a door or a window, but not a wall. Yeah. A window, like letting things in as opposed to the the buck stops here, you know, that kind of thing. It, it's it, We actually need both of those. And I, I tend to think right now that the former might be uh, the place to start of just as much as we can uh, being more a community minded uh, yeah. in our in our culture at large. And, and it, it ties into everything you've said thus far, especially codifying it down to staying focused on the here and now and the life that we're living and, and the difference that we are making and, and being conscious of that reality that we're here to make a difference. Now, each one of us has our own perspective on what that's going to be. I myself, years ago, never really wanted to use the phrase, I want to change the world because it was described to me as no, no, no. You, that's too big. That's way too big. You, little pieces, little pieces. Just take bite size, you know, tiny little things, you know. But I say today, I want to change the world for the better for everybody. What that will look like, I don't know. All I know is right now, it is not a better place for everybody. And I don't know. I'm not talking about a utopia by any means. But I've also noticed, too, uh, Matthew, that some of the things that have been going on in the different realms of of our society, when I say that, I mean like the uh, economic and educational, religious, political, et cetera, et cetera, are not bad nor good, but they are there to open doors or windows to a better world because we're having conversations. You made the comment and you used the phrase mental health, not uh, mental disease or disorder. And I'm having conversations on this program with people dealing with mental health and that we're having this conversation in order to destigmatize the issues surrounding mental health because we all have mental health as we have physical health and spiritual health, and emotional health. We all have those things, but at, at, at different at different degrees in different ways. Like my father is not so great with the physical health, okay? Not so great with that. 
I don't know what his spiritual health is because he sort of kept that to himself. And you know what? That's okay. I don't need to know. It's a personal relationship. Just like if I was to ask you, Matthew, so what's your inner life like? What goes on in there? What, you know, uh, you know, what kind of meetings do you have with the, with the, uh, God or with your inner voice uh, kind of thing? You know what? None of my business. Not really. <laughs> Whereas I, on the other hand, what do you want to know? I'll tell you whatever you want to know because that's just my personality. That's just my way. Uh, it seems to me like uh, embodied Kabbalah, um, the way you've did, talked about it with uh, Jewish mysticism, um, that's that's part of it. Is 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 recognizing in each other the the level of privacy that we want, um, in, and also the the level of expression that some of us want to give, like myself. And I, 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 the reason I'm so expressive that way is because I've come to the realization that God, the creator, the force, whatever, already knows everything about me. So what difference if 8 billion plus people know? And most of them don't care. They're just trying to live their lives and, and do the right thing, hopefully, and, 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 and make this world a better place for themselves and their families. Can you uh, talk to us a little about your perspective on all of that? I know that's a lot. Sure. And just uh, to clarify, I'm not opposed to talking about uh, my mental health, my inner state. If you want to talk about that, I, I do believe and I appreciate the respect for people's privacy uh, in general. But I, I think talking about these things is is really important. Um, I uh, yeah, I that's 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 what I'll start with. I just sort of if you mm -hmm. want to ask anything there, I'm 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 open. Well, it wasn't so much wanting to open that door to talk about your mental health, but it was the fact that you use that term and yet you, you are willing to discuss it and help others by the by the process you would be doing of destigmatizing it by saying, hey, I'm a male. I got issues I'm dealing with challenges. I'm a rabbi. I got issues and I got challenges just like you. That's that's really was was my point of bringing that up. Sure. Well, I can say in embodied Kabbalah, the the main messages have to do with the body and the mind, the body and the soul, the the outer and the inner world are so connected. And if we want to feel better mentally, we ought to take care of ourselves well physically. That those two things, it's this again, the simplest thing in the world. Eating well, sleeping well, getting plenty of exercise, do those three things. Your life's going to feel better. You're going to have more insight. You're going to just feel happier. And yeah, there's a lot of other things we can do, but just that right there, mental health, physical health, they're incredibly linked. And also that we need to be aware of some of us, especially, I think every human has this tendency on some level is to, we want to bypass what's hard. We want to skip beyond it. Mm -hmm. And that can mean having, we don't want to have that difficult conversation with someone, but it can also mean when I'm having a negative experience internally, even if even if a delicious meal doesn't take it away, I it's easy, especially when I was younger, I want to just skip over that. And what did I find? That I could actually do spiritual practices that would cause me to forget about my emotions. And that was great for a little while and terrible in the long term because it they all just kind of bubbled up. So we can use, so one of my favorite teachings from the Hebrew Bible, the book of Isaiah, he, he's saying, he's sort of the prophet is speaking from God's perspective and says, you know, God forms light 
and creates darkness, mm. makes peace and creates evil, meaning it's all from God, the good, the evil, the dark, the light. Mm -hmm. And there are using methods like focusing just the and the, the perspective of no, sometimes I have to descend into the dark side of the force or into really the, <laughs> the, the challenges within that kind of you could call it demonic, but that's it's really just the the nitty-gritty of of the difficulties we face inside of ourselves. Everyone has these. Yeah. And and you can go into that, and it's not about transcending them. It's actually about understanding them and working through them. And they start to change. They start to have shifts on their own. And and the the hope really is that we don't return back to neutral afterwards is what we grow. It's a positive to walk through the muck and discover what's there and the gems that are there. And then the muck starts to clear away. And that's incredibly valuable. Again, if we're resourced, if we're feeling able to do that difficult work, if we love our bodies, so to speak, we can then have a have a really good encounter with with what's going on inside, and we can grow through that. And that's those are two sides of a of the same coin of mental well being. And that is health. that's very cool. I really love it. I will tell you, as I've said on this program to our listeners and our guests, this is ther this is my therapy. This is part of my therapeutic process. Is these interviews, and I've been doing this depending upon where you'd like to start the calendar, either nineteen eighty or seventy nine or eighty. Uh, or going back to 1972, when I was 12 years old, and I did my first interview with a local uh, a local actor who is part of a kids show on a local television station in Phoenix. And I went to the studio, and I went through the show, and then I went into his dressing room, and I had a little tape recorder. 12-year-old kid interviewing this guy who's in broadcasting, not knowing really, although it must have been intuitive, that I would be here today conducting interviews like this. Um, this is a therapy for me because it allow because I'm willing to talk about these things. Uh, and I know you are too. Uh, my sister who passed last year, I found out not only from personal experience, but also during the memorial, she was not afraid of the hard questions. I even asked her in January of last year, are you ready? Now, she was born and raised Catholic, but she converted over to a different, well, I shouldn't say converted, but she went over to a, a different sect, if you will. I like to call them sects myself, of Christianity, uh, Church of Christ, which is much more, I, I'm going to say much more, um, uh, 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 I don't even know what the word is now, but uh, Church of Christ, look it up, Google it. Uh, anyway, and uh, we had a conversation, and this kind of goes back to part of our conversation that you and I have had here. We were standing in the kitchen at Thanksgiving while mother was making Thanksgiving dinner. She was not happy about the conversation we were having either. Uh, in any event, and she was concerned about my salvation, you know, that I was, whether I was saved or not, and my beliefs. And I said, Jeanette, my beliefs of yesterday are not my beliefs of today are not my beliefs of tomorrow because I'm still alive. I'm still growing. I'm still learning. I'm still experiencing do you think that a lot of people, and, and maybe it is out of a, a sense of fear, and they want that consistency, they want that stability, when in fact, when you really look at the in the, at the grand scheme of things, there isn't any, uh, you know, because uh, everything's changing, everything's moving. Um, but that's what I told her. I says, no, uh, you know, I understand what you're saying, but I'm not willing to confine, confine myself to a box or uh, stay inside the nine do nine dots because I'm a curious individual, just like you, Matthew. I'm, I'm curious. I have these questions. Now, am I looking for answers so that I can 
I can concrete stuff in? Not really, no. But when I ask people like yourself these questions and I get answers from you, it opens up a whole different a whole different door for me uh, of thinking. And, and that's really, for me, what this is sort of about. So I want to thank you so much for, for sharing your perspective and your book, Embodied Kabbalah, uh, a, 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 and it's, it's Jewish mysticism for all people. And uh, it's, it's a really a great pleasure to have had you on the program. Thank you so much, Richard. And it's an honor for you to tell me that I've opened up a door for you, because that's the whole point of this project. It's to open up doors uh, and be a bridge between this esoteric tradition and, and the needs of today and what people are really thinking about and striving for. So I, I really appreciate that comment. And uh, for all you shared today, Richard. Who is Arthur, uh, Arthur Green? He wrote your foreword. Arthur Green is an incredibly prolific scholar and rabbi who teaches Jewish mysticism. He is one of the people in the last, I will say, 50, 100 years who has done the most work to translate and to bring Kabbalah and Jewish mysticism in general to a, a wider audience. He's, he was a supervisor of mine in rabbinical school. I have a bunch of his books behind me on the shelf here. He's a, is an extremely prolific writer and a talented teacher and translator of Jewish mysticism. We're talking with Rabbi Matthew Ponak and the book Embodied Kabbalah here on Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and I thank you so much for being with us here, along with uh, Rabbi Rabbi Matthew Ponak and uh, the book that we've been talking about uh, throughout this entire program mentioning, and we encourage you to go to his website to find out more uh, at matthewponak.com is Embodied Kabbalah, Jewish mystic Mysticism for All People. So we uh, want you to get a copy of that. Uh, we're going to link to that website, by the way, your website, uh, uh, Matthew, so that uh, folks can find out more about you and the work you're doing. And uh, who knows, maybe um, find out more about how they can connect with you and and uh, go through this process of um, the embodied Kabbalah. But before we let you go, I have three questions that I like to ask all of my guests. And um, they're actually fun over the last 15 years. We're in our 15th year, actually. Uh, we've changed the questions around a little bit. And um, again, this is also part of that uh, opening the door or window uh, into your world. I look at this as um, it's Christmas. And guess what? I get to open a package called Matthew Ponak. And I get to go into his world and see what I can glean from the conversation, as well as from the book Embodied Kabbalah. However, before I do that, I want to thank you for listening to and watching Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. We're giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. We are here on Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., Monday mornings at 1 a.m., and Wednesdays at 9 a.m. for our special edition of Tell Me Your Story. We stream at those times at richarddugan.com, and the podcasts are on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, Blueberry, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, and many other locations on the internet, too, too many to mention. We're on YouTube where you can watch these interviews, and um, we hope that you'll subscribe or at least uh, click notifications so that when I put up a new interview, you'll be notified that there's a new one there. And also, uh, we ask that, uh, as mentioned at the beginning of the program, you participate in the decade of perfect vision, the 2020s. Go within and just spend some time in that quiet, peaceful place. That that place, 
I think I can say this accurately, that place of Shabbat, okay, where you listened to that still small voice. It's quiet. It's not going to disturb you. It's not going to to uh, 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 shock you. But um, we encourage you to do that. And if you'd like to support the work we're doing financially, we would greatly appreciate that. We do have a PayPal account. It is there for your security as well as ours. And with all of that being said, I then go into the three questions that I ask uh, all of my guests. And the first that has never changed is... Who is Matthew Ponak? <laughs> Who is Matthew Ponak? Wow. That is the simplest, deepest question you could ask, Richard. <laughs> I would say the simplest answer I could give is Matthew Ponak is Matthew Ponak. And the more nuanced answer is that I am I have a I am a body. I have a body. I am a heart. I have I have an emotional world and I am an emotional world. I have an, a mind and I am a mind and I have a soul and I am that soul as well. And all of those worlds come together to be who I am right here and right now and at every moment. What is your life's purpose? I'm here to be a teacher and a connector. I'm a... Cultivating the path of the sacred bridge between what is known and what is unknown, what is accessible, what is inaccessible, what's right here and now, and what lies beyond. And finally, what was your best day? My best day was the day I got married to my wife, mm. uh, Melina, in 2013 in Boulder, Colorado. It was sort of a, a day where it felt like the, the heavens had opened and were shining their light upon us, surrounded by friends and family and just filled with love and blessings for, for her and for myself and for, for everyone around us. So you'll be celebrating your 10th anniversary this year. Absolutely. Congratulations. Thank you. And thank you again for joining us here on the program. Uh, it's been a delight. We'd love to have you back again to talk more. We could uh, also have you back to talk more, more in specific about the contents of the book. Although I like to encourage people to get a copy and read it for themselves. <laughs> well, I want to thank you, and I thank you for listening to and watching Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World, where we're giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. Until our next broadcast, podcast, videocast, love to lol. And Jeanette, you betcha I am still listening.